go, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 5. We're going to look at verses 12 through 21 today. While you're turning, let me just kind of get us up to speed. Once again, I'm going to recap. We recap, we've been, you know, I recap a lot, especially since we teach through text. Um, but today it's really important to recap because this section of Romans 5 is not only a summary of just these, these last few sermons from chapter 5, which it certainly is, but really it's a summary of Paul's letter up to this point. Um, and so again, Romans is a letter from Paul, who was a missionary, a church planter, and a pastor, um, to the church in Rome. And he's, he's writing to bring unity under the saving work of Christ. And so let me once again kind of give us a quick, full view of how we've gotten to where we are today as we go into Romans 5, 12 through 21. Um, so as, as we've been looking at Paul's teaching to us, when we see first that Paul took the time to show our great need, our great, our, the great reality, and I say great meaning like in, in abundance, not as like enjoyable, of sin in our life, that we are all sinful, that, that we have this huge problem. So he went to, to great extent to show our need for salvation, to show our need for a redeemer, because we cannot overcome the sin debt on our own, that we are hopeless in that fact. So he really laid that out. We spent a few weeks of really just kind of digging in and sitting in and kind of being a little uncomfortable, getting some glimpses of hope, but really just kind of like, okay, I'm not that great. And but there's someone who is. And so he really took that time. And as we and as uh, as we see, he's moving us. He's been working to show what was he moved on from there is our way to salvation. And as he was establishing that our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he was working to show that we have, because of that, we have this great assurance of hope in our salvation. We can have it. And he's been set out to build that kind of that fortress of hope for us. He wants us to know, like, you can have confidence, you can be, you can be confident in your salvation, and you can, you can, you can rest assured. Again, because our salvation, and the word that we, that we used a lot was justification, being made right in our standing before God by grace through faith in Jesus. So this means, again, that our salvation is not on our merits, but on the merit of Jesus and the work that he accomplished in fulfilling the law by taking on our sin on the cross and sealing our victory forever in his resurrection. So we saw that, and then we saw that, again, as he's working to build our confidence to show that our salvation is not of ourselves, and therefore we can actually be confident, he compared the, 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 the heroes of the, of the people of Israel. He compared, he showed that Abraham and David, even them, did not stand on their own righteousness but he had the righteousness of Christ to come. And they trusted God, and it was counted to them in their faith as righteousness. And then we saw that, that God wants us to remember this, this assurance. He wants us to remember his favor. Again, he cares about this, this security. He not only secured it for us, but now he wants us to actually live in it and, and experience it. And so then we saw as we went that he did, the, that, he did that by pouring his love into our hearts. And we saw both quantitatively and qualitatively for an overflowing measure, not just enough, but to where it overwhelms and overtakes. And then also the greatest quality, he contrasted the, the, the love of God shown through Christ versus the way that we tend to love, the way that the temporal love works, the way that the selfish love works. And he showed that the, the love of God in Christ is far greater, 
so we saw this love poured into our hearts so that we would remember the love of God is, is overflowing and, and of the, the preeminent supreme quality. And he didn't leave it up to us to remember. It said it was poured. His love was poured into us by the Holy Spirit so that in the Holy Spirit being incorruptible and eternal, sharing the very nature and character and wisdom and power of God, this Holy Spirit secures us because the Holy Spirit advocates the truth and love of God to us. Just as Jesus advocates our righteousness to the Father, we see the, we saw the Holy Spirit is calling out the love of God. Remember, he's saying, don't forget, I love you. Oh, you, you, you fell there? Guess what? I love you. Oh, you've done this? Guess what? I love you. Oh, you haven't done that? I still love you beyond measure. Praise God for that. Paul's been showing the things that we're hoped in, the things of this world, the, the, the temporal goals, the temporal securities, that they're inferior to Jesus. Jesus is better than the law for achieving our righteousness. Jesus better is a better hero than Abraham and David. The love of Jesus is better than the kind of love we love with. Therefore, although God, although God wants our effort in our salvation, He has not left us to earn our salvation. Have you ever been in a conversation and just felt that it just took a hard left turn? You know what I'm talking about? Like Friday night, we were hanging out with the Lizenbees. And we're, we're talking about dogs and vacations. They're always taking some cool trip. And they were like in Colorado, then Hawaii. And I was like, I, I went to, I went to um, College Station. But anyway, but we're talking about, you know, like, we're talking about dogs and vacations and food and restaurants and like what, and what God's teaching us and what we're learning and, you know, and, and just kind of sharing some joys through others. And then all of a sudden, like, we find that we're, we're talking about spiritual oppression and, and dark spiritual experiences. And Amber's like, Amber literally goes, oh, this, uh, this kind of took a hard turn there. When did that happen? <laughs> and we were like, I don't know. So I was like, let's, anyway, but I mean, like, we've all had that. And if you've been tracking with us through this text, as we move into these verses today, you may feel like this a hard left turn. You're like, man, we're like picking up all this momentum and trajectory of hope and assurance and confidence and love of God. I'm like, and it's all over me and it's in me. And, like, and I'm overwhelmed by it. I get to invite others into that. This is awesome. And then you get to this text. You're like, what? How did this happen? So, you know, that's probably what it might feel like. But I want to encourage you just to hang with me today through this text for the next few minutes. Um, and, and it will be worth it. I promise. So with that being said, let me pray. God, we love you. And we thank you for your overwhelming, overwhelming, overtaking, indescribable love. A love that is, that is the love you've given us, but also a love totally unlike anything we have. We thank you for the work of our, of our redemption, of our being put in right standing before you was not on our merit, but on the merit, the work of Jesus. And yes, you are a holy God who demands holy lives from us, but in your grace and in your understanding and in your patience and forbearance, you made a way for us to be whole, redeemed, restored, reconciled in Christ. 
So Lord, I pray today now as we continue in this trajectory, even though it doesn't feel like it right away, that, that we would that we would gain our understanding of, your, of, of you and the work you've accomplished in Christ and who we are in him. So Lord, we give you this time. We love you in Jesus' name. So we're going to work through the text as we as we go today. Uh, and, and let me say this: there are, are many, many valid and worthy things, worthy concepts and truths and questions to work through as as we go through this text. But for the sake of time, we're going to focus on the central drive of what Paul was wanting to get across. And so, please write those things down, those questions down. Let them feed your time together with others. Let them feed your time with, uh, with us, the elders, or, or anything like that. Again, they are worthy and they are good, but for the sake of us being done close to 25 minutes, we want to or a few more. We want to um, focus just on what Paul is focusing on. So let's, let's get into this. Here we go. Romans 5, 12, we're starting there. Just verse 12. Here we go. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, and he stops there, and that dash is part of the translation, is part of the idea. Does that seem like an incomplete thought? It, it does. Like, I, you feel it, like you read it with this natural tone, and you're, like you're reading it, like kind of keeping going, and you're like, then there's nothing else there. And, and, and so it is a complete thought. Paul starts with the central claim of this section by a statement of comparison, but he doesn't complete the comparison. What's going on, Paul? I thought you were a better writer than that. But we've seen this happen in a place, and it's like Paul's writing, and all of a sudden, like, he just gets overtaken by this, by this insight that he's like, wait a minute, before I go any farther, i got to stop and i got to address this. He did this in Ephesians when we were teaching through Ephesians a few years ago. But he, so he, he breaks off his comparison. He doesn't finish. So it's not complete. We will complete it in a little bit. But what's the statement Paul makes here? What's the central claim of this verse? It's this. Through Adam's sin, because of Adam's sin, sin entered the world. Death is the punitive consequence of Adam's sin. That's physical and spiritual death, where we die physically and experience separation from God. And then that everyone that, that is to come after Adam, that's all of us, is guilty of this sin and under the same sentence of death. That's the central claim being made in this verse that Paul so kindly breaks off completing his thought. It's like, oh man. So he must do it for a good reason. So in other words, what we're seeing here in this claim is that we are also, we're accountable. We are accountable for Adam, for his sin. So you may call foul. And I, don't, I don't like that. And, and just a few pushbacks on that. Point. These are the, again, these things. When I project onto you a question, I think you're asking. Really, I'm just trying to find like company in my own struggle. These are all things that I went through as I was studying this, and as I have studied it. So you may call foul. So first, I say if you're calling foul, first off, if if the Creator God wants to do this very thing, if He wants to hold us accountable as you know to Adam's sin, I mean, just as Creator God. 
he certainly has the right to do that. And Paul kind of calls us to this posture later in Romans 9, which we'll get to next fall. But he calls us to this posture, like, who are you? It's kind of like Job. Who are you to question God? He's God. So first off, just if, if God wants to do that, he can. Secondly, just a personal thought exercise, would you have been any more successful than Adam was? If you were the first Adam, would you have handled it any better? Think on that. Uh, third, I, I, I know my answer was no. So uh, third, and, and I think that, and this, and this is the key, is that we have to understand what all sinned means when we see that, and all sinned. Without, without going into all the different views, which, which, you know, there are some, even though they don't hold a lot of water when you really hold to, to the text and to truth, what we see here is that because Adam sinned, all of mankind is seen as guilty of sin and treated as guilty of sin, experiencing the punitive consequence of sin, right? So what Paul is saying is that Adam is our representative. It's a, it's a federal, it's called a federal representation. So he, and, and, and the way we would understand it is that he is our covenantal representative. We need to understand the word imputed here. This is because we were imputed Adam's sin. What does that mean? It's a, it means that it's when a category or a standing is transferred to another. Adam was our, he was our first covenantal representative. He represented all of creation and how God designed and created. He represented all creation, so his sin and the consequence of his sin are credited, imputed, credited to all of creation to come. And this is not a foreign concept, this representative idea. We, we live in America. We live in a democracy where we have representative government. And so if, if our representative government says that we are at war with the country, we're all at war with the country. Now, philosophically, consciously, we have our own standing. But as far as the people goes, if our, if our representative government says we are at peace with the country, we are all at peace with the country. So guess what? All of us are having an increasing possibility of one day being at peace with North Korea, so the, so the news says. I don't know. Anyway, I hope so. That was not enough. Um, <laughs> But, but you get it, this representative idea, and, and it actually, we see the function of it. So at this point, there are a couple of responses that, that, that we're all having right now. There's, and again, maybe it was just me, but it makes me feel better to say we're all having. Um, first off, sin and death are not cool. Like, we, we just don't, it's not good, it's not right. And, and that's true, it's not. They were not a part of God's design and desire. But yet, because of sin, because of the fall, they entered in like an invading force. So you're correct. It's not cool. It's not right. It was never meant to be a part. So sin and death, they don't belong here. They entered in like an invading force. God didn't create sin. Sin was not dormant and then was awakened. Sin entered in. Death entered in like an invading force. Second, close to... I call foul is, is also just more more plainly said, this is not fair. I don't like it. I don't like that I mean, again, we're American. Like we are we are we, we are free to take responsibility for ourselves and we're told to take responsibility for ourselves and we don't like it when we're held responsible for someone else's mistake. I mean 
gosh. You know, we, we don't. And I just had like five examples built in my head and I, and I couldn't give any of them. So, but it's not fair. We don't like it. Why am I held accountable for something someone else did? Why did Adam's sin have to be credited to me? I wasn't even there. Not fair. So I get it. I feel it. So Paul gets it too, which is why he interrupts himself. So let's keep going. So there's two questions that move us to our next verses. And, and, and so being that this is a hard truth to swallow, we want to say to Paul, what is your proof, man? Like, what, how can you say this? Like, what's your proof? This is a big deal. So what's your proof, question one. Second question is, what was the comparison Paul was making that he didn't finish? So let's go to our next verses. Verses 13 and 14, and these verses move to answer those two questions. 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Makes perfect sense, right? Should we read it again? Like, I don't know if it will help, but let's read it again. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, so I know that kind of makes my head spin. But Paul breaks off his comparison here to give us proof of his claim that all that are in Adam, which is all of us, are under the reign of death as a consequence for sin. So that was the statement now he's setting out to prove. And that is the drive of here. That's the drive here. So we, so we are in the same lot as Adam. This is what, this is what Paul sets out, sets out to prove. So we see here it says sin was not counted before the law. Again, think about the audience Paul is talking to. He's talking to a people of Israel, and the, the way that they viewed the law, the law was the, the way to righteousness, and we've already talked about how the law could not achieve that. The law could not bring your salvation. So the law was not given until Moses, and yet there's all this time from creation to Moses, and yet everyone in that time frame, what, they, what happened to them? They died. We saw in the Old Testament that people lived for a long time, but the very last thing of each one of them is they died. So everybody Everybody died. We know this because people died. And we're talking, it's not just the moral law. It's not just, he's not just talking about the moral law, but he's also talking about the law of nature. All died. Those that were not under the law, he's, he's exploding that. It wasn't just because they, 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 they died and, and again, the law wasn't there, so it wasn't the consequence for their moral ability. But, but also he talks about those who died without transgression. And I think a great example that was in view here is infants. I mean, like, they haven't had a chance to actually willfully sin against God, but plenty of infants, especially in that time, died. And so he's saying the consequence of Adam is on everyone, and it's not just because the law. So that's the proof. And again, we see it. Like, George Bernard Shaw said it well. The statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die, right? So we see it as a pervasive consequence on all people that it was before the law, 
So again, we are all under the consequence and sin of Adam. So, so what or who is Adam being compared to? So because the first half of the comparison is that because of the sin offense of one man, all die. So that keeps going. So what's the comparison? It says that Adam was a type of one who was to come. It's not talking about us. It's about the one. And, and by the way, the reason why this one man, one man language is, it's, it's for the effect of teaching this contrast. Here when we see the death and sin came to all men, it is, a, it is an inclusive term of men and women, all of us, just, just to be clear. But it says that Adam was a type, and that type is the one. The one is the one to come, Jesus. So Adam was a type. Here we're saying we're seeing how they are like. He was like Jesus in that he was a covenantal representative for all of humanity and maybe he's tipping his hand for what's to come, just like Jesus is. So this is how they are alike. Adam was the first covenantal representative. Jesus is the, the second. There's only two, by the way. And, and even we see in Scripture Jesus referred to as the second Adam. So that's how Jesus and Adam are alike. That's the comparison that got cut off. That's the comparison we're going to move towards and unpack as we go. So, so we are all under the consequence and, and, and sentence of sin and death. And, and that's because of Adam's representative work of us. And yet he is like one of us to come, our next, our, our, our better second, a better covenant representative, Jesus. So as Paul makes this statement, it's like he realizes there's another layer of clarification. So instead of... Instead of finishing his comparison, he actually goes a little deeper to not only show how they are alike, but now he sets out to show how Jesus and Adam are not alike, how they're different. And I like the movie Inception, so I just feel like we're going into like another layer, and hopefully time slows down. Um, <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, go watch it, that makes sense. Um, but in verses 15 through 17, Paul sets out to contrast Adam and Jesus as our covenantal representatives. So let's take them one at a time. First, verse 15. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more hath the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Oh, we've made the turn. So good. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the, that one man, Jesus Christ, of God. The free gift here equals the gift of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which results, that is our way of justification, that is our way of salvation. God can say that we are innocent because we have been credited the righteousness of of Jesus. Again, we've said this a bunch in this room, but again, God is a righteous and good judge, and so a good judge cannot acquit the, yes, acquit the guilty. He cannot condemn the innocent. A good judge, a righteous judge, will always condemn the guilty and acquit the innocent. So for us to be deemed innocent, God just can't say, okay, I'm not going to hold that against you. I just say, okay, I'll just sweep it under the rug. He's like, no, the innocence of my son Jesus is yours as if you have never sinned against me. So the free gift is this gift of righteousness credited to us 
through the work of Christ, which results in our salvation. It's the same as saying, so this, this, uh, this trespass is the same as saying the fall. So we can say the fall is not like the grace of gracious restoration. Beautiful. Why? Because if by the offense of one, many die, how much more? You saying like how much greater? If that's true, if this smaller thing, if this bigger thing has to be much more true, how much more by the free gift of grace of one shall many live? The one being Jesus. If the lesser is true, how much more will the greater be true? Adam was a man. Jesus is God in the flesh. All right, 15, 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And again, I think this one's really important if you're still clinging on to the not fair. Even though Paul is speaking specifically of the representation of Adam and Jesus and contrasting them and showing the greater work of Jesus, there's still this personal responsibility that comes through here. Paul takes it further to show the supremacy of Jesus over Adam as our covenant representative by saying the one sin of Adam, Adam's one act of sin brought on all of our condemnation. He says, but the work of Christ, the work of obedience and righteousness of the one man, Jesus, has not only overcome the one sin of Adam, but has overcome the many sins of all of us. Catch that. Does that blow you away? Like, let's not sit in an academic seat and in an intellectual posture and just let that blow by. Like, praise God. Like, it overcame not only just the work of Adam, but us as well. Let that humble you. Let that embolden you. Let that break you. Let that, let that set you free. Okay, moving quickly, Romans 5.17, which are our last contrast of how they are different. For if the cause of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I love how Charles Hodge, pastor and commentator all around and summarize this. He said, If on account of the offense of one man we are condemned, much more will those who receive the righteousness graciously offered to them in the gospel not only be delivered from condemnation, but also reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. As the one event has happened, how much more will we who voluntarily receive the gift of righteousness that's received, the gift of righteousness through faith and belief, not only be saved from the consequences of the fall, but be made partakers of eternal life. Although these contrasts, they work to, to show that Jesus is, is a greater covenantal representative, again, that's not the central point of what Paul is driving at. It's the central point of this section, but let us not forget how we got here and where we're going. The central point is that our salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. And therefore, we can have confidence. Jesus came that we may have life. 
1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. One more thought on the fairness issue. After all of this, we, we have to see that if, if we call it unfair to be imputed or credited the sin and death of Adam, to have integrity, to be consistent, we would also have to say it is unfair to be credited the righteousness and salvation in the life of Jesus. So, if we want to, to come to a posture of joy in our hearts over this difficult teaching, let us remember the grand scheme of, of, of God's redemptive narrative. Let us remember the way he created and designed and how he saw fit to deliver us in the most perfect way. So, praise God it's not fair. It was being trouble. So Paul returns to his original thought from verse 12, picking up the full comparison once again. So, so again, we're in the lot with Adam, now we're continuing to go, he, and he now he's kind of working in these summary statements, verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So when it comes when it comes to the imputed uh, realities of, of another here that we see these comparisons, what we see here in verses 18 and 19 is a matter of, of, of what you are considered and how you are treated. It's this, this, this comparing, this contrasting of what you're considered and how you're treated. In verse 18, we see that in Adam, we're treated as guilty. And in Jesus, we are treated as righteous and as innocent. In 19, we see that in being, in being made sinners, it is saying that we are placed in the category of guilty. And in the work of Christ, we are considered in the category as the one, Jesus, who has never sinned. This I mean, this is one of the most important truths, or we would label it doctrines, that you can cling to, this, this work of imputation, this work of credited righteousness of Christ given to you. The only way we can with confidence hold to our salvation is the work of Jesus. So as I was reading, I came across this, this, this interpretation of this passage, and, and I don't know the source but it has been in the church since, since the church was young. And so some pastors way back in the day went to, went to the language and interpreted this in a way of trying to make it accessible. And, and it has stood and it's consistent with the text. And so again, I, this is not, this is not a, just per se a paraphrase. This is much more of a pastoral interpretation, if I can say it that way. So I'm going to read this. And this is an, this is an interpretation of uh, verses 12 through 19. Okay, it's going to be on the screen for you as well. So here we go. I love this. So, so, so again, this is, this is this teaching, but said in a way that kind of helps us get past some of the unfamiliar language. So this is what this says, and I love it. Okay. By one man, sin entered into the world, or men were brought to stand as sinners before God. Death consequently, consequently came to everyone because on account of the offense of that one man, they were all regarded and treated as sinners. That this is really the case is plain, because the execution of the penalty of a law cannot be more extensive than its violation and consequences. 
Consequently, if all are subject to penal evils, that's, that's a punitive consequences, all are regarded as sinners in the sight of God. This universality in the infliction of, of penal evil cannot be accounted for on, for on this, excuse me, let me just start that sentence over. This uni universality in the infliction of penal evil cannot be accounted for on the basis of the violation of the law of Moses, since men were subject to such evil before the law was given. Nor can it be accounted for because of the violation of the more general law written on the heart, since even those who have never personally sinned at all are subject to this evil. We must conclude, therefore, that men are regarded and treated as sinners on account of the sins of Adam. He is, therefore, a type of Christ. The cases, however, are not entirely analogous, for if it is consistent with the divine character that we should suffer for what Adam did, how much more may we expect to be made happy for what Christ has done? Besides, we are condemned for one sin only on Adam's account, whereas Christ saves us not only from the evils consequent on the, that transgression, but also from the punishment of our own innumerable offenses. Now, if for the offense of one, death thus triumphs over all, how much more will they who receive the grace of the gospel not only be saved from evil, but reign in life through Christ Jesus? Therefore, as the cause of one man, the condemnatory sentence has been passed on all the descendants of Adam, so because of the righteousness of one man, your justification comes on all who receive the grace of Christ. For as we are regarded as sinners because of the disobedience of the one, so because of the obedience of the other, we are regarded as righteous. I just, I, I thought, like, teaching of this text will kind of pass as you go on in your life. So having that as a reference is really helpful to get you back to the social claims and teachings of this text. So I mean, if you need a copy of that, I'll let it pass on to you. Beautiful truth. So we have two more verses to go to bring this astounding beauty of God's grace showing Christ into full view. 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that our salvation is not by law or our works, but it's in Jesus Christ. The law makes aware our need for a Savior. That's what we see here. The law was not meant to bring life or even to induce guilt, but to prime our hearts for receiving the gracious, the gracious deliverance through surrender and, and faith to God. And, gives, and that gives us our righteousness. That's what the law was meant to do. So when it says the trespass increases, it's saying that it awakens your heart to your need for a Savior. <coughs> God's grace is far greater than our sin. Let your conscience be lifted. I mean, I have the conversation all the time of people saying, I, 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 mean, I, I understand that it says that God forgives me, but I, I just have a hard time, I have a hard time really believing that. Then I have a hard time forgiving myself. And again, let's do another lesser to greater, but in reverse order. If God can forgive you, certainly you can forgive yourself. And make a good order for Christ. Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin, is what we see here. Christ's gift is greater than your sin. 
So to close, let us live with these realities. Your sin has a communal effect. We see that. We, we never sin in isolation. Even the sins you keep in the dark, they have a communal effect. So look around you. Husbands, dads, brothers, friends, sisters, mothers, the body of Christ. Look around you and take responsibility for those guys getting you to serve. Again, God is the one who transforms us in the work of Christ. He is the one who turns hearts. But again, we are invited to pursue and to take off the old and put on the new. And we are called uh, together and we're given responsibility for one, for one another. Secondly, since the universal problem of the human race is sin, the universal solution is the gospel. So let us be active in doing the tangible work of the kingdom. Let us be active in, in loving our neighbors patiently and respectfully and, and consistently. But let us also not put out any kind of falsehood. Let us not diminish the full hope available in Christ. Let us hold out the gospel of Jesus through our actions and through our words so that the universal problem could, could be pushed back so that we can see the victory of Jesus in others' lives. <clears throat> and I encourage you to think about it. if this is true, the universal problem is sin and the universal remedy is the gospel, let us just kind of walk out considering how should this affect my everyday? Because the magnificent, transforming work of God's gospel and the work of the kingdom is meant by and large to be impacted through your everyday as you wake up and rise and as you go back to bed and everything in between. Those things are the place that God's glory is going to be made known and people will encounter the gospel. If the universal problem is guilt by identification with Adam's sin, then salvation cannot be through adding our good works or the nature of our performance. This text is all about how sinners can be put right with God. We must be identified with Christ's righteousness by faith. We must receive God's gift through Christ. God is not against effort, right? We've said this. He's against earning your salvation. Remember what we said a few weeks ago? We are invited to rest in the complete work of Christ while we work for the glory of God in that rest. If we are in Christ, our salvation is secure, not because of anything in you, but because we are in Jesus. You're saved by Christ's obedience on the cross and the fact that you're trusting in him. So if you need this salvation today, you don't have to wait. You can surrender today. Still have some more questions, please come and find myself or, or one of our elders, which would be our Cairo in here today, and Matt somewhere. And Matt, or just someone you know that you trust, and lots of lots of people I call my name. But come, come have that conversation. If you're secure in the salvation, and I pray we live in such a way that proclaims this freedom as we rest in Christ. Let me pray. God, I'm humbled 
I was there. And I am thankful for your love. God, I, uh, I just thank you that you have pursued us. Lord, you gave all or for what was required of us. So Lord, I pray now as we continue to respond in communion, I pray that we reflect on the, the work of Christ and who we are in Him. Amen.